Hey, Autumn. Hey, Adrian. Um, can you explain to me again why someone would become a patron of our podcast? Like, because we give it all away. So, yeah, why? like, why? Yeah. Why? What's the point of being a patron versus just being a listener? A listener. Yeah. Well, the great thing about being a patron now mm-hmm. is that if you sign up to be become a patron now, you get access exclusively to our merchandise. Oh, it's like the VIP lounge. It's like the VIP lounge. And the merchandise includes um, not just original artwork by you. I did that. You did that. Okay. But also original artwork by Hannah Chalou, yeah. by Bianca Iberlosea. And it also includes, if you, if you become a patron at any level, you also get exclusive access to AMA episodes. Me anything. Ask, ask me, me anything. anything. So we a few so times a year. A-U-A. Ask us anything. A-U-A. Right. That's right. That's, That's right. right. So A-U-A a few times a year, we are going to have these exclusive streamed events, yes. AUAs, where anyone who's a patron yeah. will be able to log in okay. and ask us questions and we'll just have to answer them. Oh God, that sounds invasive. But that <laughs> also sounds exciting. So basically, I'm going to become a patron right now. Yeah. I, I should become a patron too. That way I can get the merch and have access to our events. We want you to go to patreon.com slash end of the world show. And you can check out all the different tiers and levels. If you give it the highest tier, you get all of the different kinds of merch that you can get. If you give it the lowest tier, which is just $6 a month, you get an exclusive print a piece of art that Adrian made. And it's got you, unicorns, y'all. Unicorns <laughs> running away from an explosion. It's perfect. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for being patient with us. It's worth the wait. It's really worth the wait. The it's merch definitely is worth the wait. And we love y'all. Love you. Knowing the knowing who your people are, that's about actively making choices, right? Like choosing the people that you want to move through the most stressing or distressing moments of your life with and intentionally building relationships with people that you know, like your goal is to be able to hold each other through something. Adam Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living on Dakota and Anishinaabe land, currently known as Minneapolis. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown, a person who needs to look at an intro in order to know who I am. I'm a writer, a student of miracles and love an emergent strategist and a pleasure activist living in the land of the Lumbee peoples, currently known as Durham. This is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from the apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. I'm really excited. We have a sister from another sister <laughs> here with us today, our friend <laughs> Danny McLean. I know that sounds weird. A sister from another mother. Another myth. Well, yeah. A sister, sister from another, from another mother. Mister. Yeah, I was like, the mister oh. has never really been a big part of this yeah. story, but I feel like 
Brandy is like uh, her own kind of mister. So, <laughs> um, but our friend Danny McLean is joining us today um, in this sibling series journey. And we're going to just check in with each other first and see how we are all doing. So, Autumn, do you want to kick us off? How are you today, right now, on the clock of the world? Today I'm good. It is very gloomy mm. in Minnesota. I'm bracing. I feel myself bracing for the winter that is ahead. And as is usually the case almost every winter, I don't feel ready for what's about to happen. But there's no stopping it from happening. I feel my ancestral bloodline crying out against this <laughs> situation. And we ain't supposed to be cold. <laughs> I have to be in it. Exactly. It's like my ancestors are like, girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not why we fought and died for you. <laughs> no. um, but it's okay. Um, I'm just trying to stay present with the reality that it becoming very, very cold is good for the earth in this place and mm-hmm. the creatures in this place. And so – that's that. Mm. How about you, Danny McLean? How mm. are you doing? Well, I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Even just so far seeing how the sausage is made, like watching <laughs> you guys, you know, watching you guys do your intros, because I always love the intros, like when Autumn was like, Autumn Brown, Sensodyne user. I'm like, I get to- <laughs> I get- I get to see you cracking your jokes, which is so beautiful. And, um, you know, yeah, so that's really nice. Um, I'm good. I'm trying to just take pleasure in the small things. Um, so, yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm uh, My, chi- my um, child, who's five, is, like, firmly in kindergarten and really enjoying herself. And, I'm sure um, star pupil. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh my gosh. Of course. Um, so I'm just kind of like resting in the awareness that she's probably doing something very fun right now. And I'm good. I'm doing well. Mm. Beautiful. Adrian, how are you? I am today finally feeling back to myself after a week of being sick. And I don't, I'm not a good sick. I've never been like, yeah. No, I don't think anyone You're not like a good like patient. Great at being sick. Yeah, but I'm like really really not into it at all. I feel like I take it personally. I feel very like offended that that bacteria wanted to accumulate in my system in such a way to have this effect and um and nowadays getting sick has all these implications and all these impacts that are different. So, you know, it was like, "Oh, we just traveled um, is it COVID? You know, I took multiple tests. I got no, but it was awful. I just could only sleep. Anything I tried to do for more than 30 minutes was like, mm. I was just like, I'm completely exhausted and I can't. And, you know, which meant like, I'm like, I need to fold laundry. And Nalo kept having to come and actually do physical intervention. Like, no, you cannot try Stop. to do things. It's lay making down. it worse. You have a fever. You need to lay down. And I slept like 18 hours a day for a couple of days straight and, um, and, and didn't feel rested. You know, that kind of like, I'm like, whew, you know, it's just like, whatever this is, it's burning its way out of my system. 
Um, and I feel better now. Um, and I could tell that I felt better. So, you know, everyone's normal is a little different, but I can tell like with my normal, one of the things that happens is it starts to occur to me that I can do a task while another task is happening. So like today (laughs) I like (laughs) put my toast in the toaster and I was like, this is the perfect amount of time to water my plants. And I went and like watered my plants while my toast was toasting. And I, by the time I was finished, I was like, I'm back. (laughs) I can I'm I back. Can I'm back. <laughs> I can realize that this is possible and I can pull it off, you know? Um, I love this window also into oh, how your brain is... orients to small tasks. <laughs> oh, Mike, this is, I love this. This is exactly the right amount of this time. The right amount of time. To migrate to each plant. Exactly. Like I can make it around to the plants. Another small task, like one of my other favorites is like, like <laughs> put being like, okay, when I'm putting some anything in to cook, it's like, this is time to fill up my water bottles because I like to chill, you know, fill up these, I have these like glass blue water bottles because of course they're turquoise and I keep them in the fridge full of water and that's how I get through my water each day. And so it's like, oh, the soup is in the Instant Pot and I have time to fill up my water bottles. Anyway, there's like all these little tasks that I like tuck into each other and it gives mm-hmm. me deep satisfaction. Like it feels like a, one of those Marie Kondo time things, you know, I'm like, this fits here. It brings me joy. So <laughs> yes, when, when that level of Virgo behavior starts happening, I feel fully back in myself. And I went for a swim today. Um, so whenever I get to be in the water, I also feel really like, ah, oh, this is right. This is good. So all of that is good. I'm so glad good. you're feeling better. Yeah, me too. So Danny McLean is not just here for kicks, you know, for fun, um, although it is fun. And But Danny McLean is an incredible journalist, an incredible writer. She has a podcast. She does all kinds of incredible work. And in this past year, she has been the caregiver of her mother who had an incident at the beginning of the year that needed deep care. And so we've gotten to, as people who love Danny, watch Danny hold both being a a deep daily full-time caregiver and full-time mama and still figuring out how to write books and write things and write articles and research and all of it. And it's been a big year. And so we were beyond honored when we realized that we're doing this sibling series and Autumn and I, we needed to be interviewed. We needed to be interviewed. <laughs> we're siblings. And one of the highlights of, of, you know, when Autumn and I realized that Danny was listening to our podcast, we were both like, holy shit, like we're really onto something. But yes. Well, cause Danny doesn't waste her time. She doesn't waste her time. She has high standards for everything. Total fan girl. Um, you know, she really pays attention to what is being said, what is being felt, what is being communicated here. Like, what is the impact of this? So the fact that our podcast is one of the things that she listens to <laughs> has been a great joy for us. And so when it, when we thought about like who could interview us, we had one name and one name only. Um, and it was Danny McLean. <laughs> and Danny one said yes. Only. So now I, I feel like very excited and also somewhat <laughs> nervous to hand over the reins because I'm like, oh shit, now we have to answer questions. But we're going to hand it over to oh Danny McLean. Gosh. Please interview mm-hmm. us. <laughs> yes. We are safe in your hands. 
Of course. I'm so excited that I get to do this. I mean, not only do I listen, I am a huge fan of this podcast. I, um, all of the different things that you guys have Ugh. taken on in various seasons. When Autumn did her deep dive into like actual apocalypse preparedness, banging like killer season. Thank you. Just listening to you two, Kiki, is like a fave. Um, but I have especially loved this season with the sibling mm. interviews. Um, you know, I'm an only child, so oh, great. Yeah. yeah, which is another reason why it's really special that I get to do this. Um, I'm an only child. I grew up with a lot of first cousins who were close, but, um, you know, being an only child is very much a part of my identity. And so I am really curious about what it's like to grow up with siblings. And so listening to your podcast, listening to people, many of whom mm. I know through movement work, or if I don't know them personally, I know of their work um, and how their lives have spanned, you know, people from all over the country, all over the world, people working in different fields. It's just been such a gift. Um, and, you know, I feel like as an only child, I sometimes kind of just like try to connect myself to <laughs> families that I really like. like kind of be like, can I join y'all? Like, would you like adopt me as a, as a, you know, honorary sibling? And I feel like, you know, I met Adrian our freshman year college uh, back in 96 and then I was immediately right after I met her was hearing all about <laughs> autumn and actually I don't think I don't think Adrian called you autumn back then because I know you by a different I name. went by Megan yeah you were Aww. Megan yeah. back then like Megan is such an incredible you know um actor and then like Megan was going to Sarah Lawrence and came to campus to visit so I got to meet Aww. you when you were such a young and a like, baby yeah, you're a baby. And so and then meeting your parents, you know, while we were in school. So I just like fan of the podcast, fan of the family. Um, <laughs> <laughs> huge. Just a lot of love for you guys. Um, so let's go ahead yeah. and get into it. And so um, mm. where are you all from? <laughs> this is such a fun yeah. question to answer because I, I'm really curious to hear – I'm realizing like with a lot of these questions, probably I've never heard the way you yeah, answer it, Adrian. Like, How do you you know I I say that we are from a house of love, like a house that uh, you know, our parents intentionally chose each other. Um, and they kind of went off from <laughs> the rest of their families in order to be in love with each other. And we are from a military environment, military background. We, my father was in the military for 30 years. And so we were all born in El Paso, Texas. Um, I was mm -hmm. born there at Fort at Bliss, Fort Bliss. Um, in El Paso, Texas. And then when I was, I think, three months old, we moved to Germany for the first tour in Germany. And I, um, we were in a, an apartment in a castle wall in a town called Budokan. And our dad was in the field all the time. And it was just me and mom basically like traipsing about Germany because there was, she was like, I didn't have a car. I didn't have a way to get around if someone from the base didn't come help me out. I didn't, we didn't have telephones, you know, to easily call home or anything else. So she was like, I was just like a 22 year old mom in Germany by myself with you. And it was just <laughs> us. Um, and then we came back from Germany to El Paso for a ne our next station. And that's when April, our middle sister was born. And then Autumn a year later, basically. 
So yeah, shortly after I was a surprise surprising. baby. Um, <clears throat> not intended, but celebrated. <laughs> mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah. And then similarly after, I guess it probably was about 10 or 11 months after I was born that um, our parents were stationed again in Germany this time in um, a town mm-hmm. called Mannheim. And so my my earliest um, memories of my life are from, yeah, when I was like, you know, four entering kindergarten there. Um, but we continued moving yeah. quite a lot. All I should say too, all of our extended family is – from and most of them, many of them still in yeah. South Carolina. We have family in South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. Um, and we did we did a four-year stint in Georgia when we were kids. Um, some of the hardest years of my childhood, Mine and too. I think yours as well. Yeah. Um, but we mostly didn't live in the South. We, we lived in various places on the eastern seaboard, um, Pennsylvania, D.C., um, we did like a year in Kansas. It's so interesting because when you talk about that, I'm like, I never think of my, I don't think I lived in those places, you know, like I, because that was after I went to college, like I was in college. That's right. You were in you, high school right? through the end of our time, our, Ger- our second, our third. our third, your third, my second time in Germany. Yeah. And then you went directly to New York for college. And I went to New York so for college. I, I went to, so the year that you two met. Mm-hmm. Danny and Adrian, that year was probably the year that I was living in Pennsylvania. It would have been like my eighth grade year. Exactly. And then we moved the to D.C. To see you guys. Um, <laughs> and I was able – I was in like a really fortunate – I think of all of us, I, I was the only one who had the experience of getting to do all four years of high school in one place. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's really yeah. true. I mean, I always say that By the time I was 18, I had lived half my life in Germany and half of it in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important, you know, like we said, the extended family, which we come from a a black family, white family that came, you know, black family and white family lineages that came together in South Carolina in 1974 uh, Mm -hmm. is when they met each other. And so we went to the South like every summer. That was our place that we would go see our grandparents, see our extended family, and so there's these like imprints, but we really came from this unit of five, you know, like I really mm-hmm. think that that like, and if you've ever had a military experience, no matter where you are, you're on a military base. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot about the structures of the military base and that life and that way of, um, you know, it's like you land and it's like, here's where you're going to go to church. Here's where social time happens. These are all the sports teams, you know, like the, mm-hmm. that military lifestyle. Um, I I definitely think that there are imprints of that that have continued to shape us. Yeah. I would say that um, this was another place where our childhood experiences diverged because, <clears throat> because of that last assignment. Um or the last assignment that our parents had when I was still living at home. Mm-hmm. Um, our dad was working at the Pentagon and we were not living on a military base during the years that we were in the DC area. Oh, yeah. So I had this experience of doing, like, for the first time ever, going to, well, I guess it wasn't the only time it happened, but 
I did high school at like an actual public school, high school. We weren't living on a military base. We were living just like in a random house in Alexandria, Virginia. And, um, but almost all of the schools that I had been in and that Adrian and I both had been in, almost all of them, not all of them, but most of them had been um, Department of Defense schools, which Mm -hmm. is also a type of public school, but it's different. It's a different experience. Yeah. 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 So you talked about the kind of structure that the military placed on your lives. What about your family structure? I heard you talk about a unit of five. What do we need to know about the other three members of your family? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I want to share that my, so my dad was the oldest of seven, is the oldest of seven. Um, And my mom is in the middle of six. And the two of them fell in love on Clemson University's campus in the library. He made eyes at her um, while she was sitting at a table with studying with another um, young, young gentleman. He made eyes at her. She thought he was out of his mind and um, (laughs) intriguing. And then through a series of like, you know, little contacts, he was able to find her number and give her a phone call. They started talking. They were married three months later and they're still together. So, and you have to keep in mind too, that this was like interracial marriage was maybe four or five years out from just having been made legal in South Carolina Carolina, at the point that they eloped and got married. Yeah. They had to, um, hide their marriage at first, um, because her family, she was like, they had eloped. They were like, not supposed to be doing this. And then she was um, actually disowned from her family for a period of time when they found out what, what she had done. And so our parents, you know, their bond with each other has always been really strong. Like growing up in our, in the unit of our family, for the most part, I, I would say it felt like they're a united force. Like, you know, they're working together to figure out how to raise us and what that looks like. Um, Hand in glove. Hand in glove. And then our sister April, who falls in the middle of us, is like, (laughs) it's so funny because I think all three of us do similar work in different ways in the world. Like we're all very facilitative, diplomatic, trying to figure out how to get people to get along with each other, Mm -hmm. but in very different contexts. And um, but since we were pretty young, you know, our unit of our family was we like to take trips together. Our parents were really interested in making sure we traveled often. So especially when we were living in Germany, we would go to Paris, we would go to Prague. We, you know, they wanted us to go to Holland and see the tulips. And for them as these two kids from the South, we went you know, skiing a lot. We went skiing a lot. We were like, you know, they were like, we may have started from the, from this place in the South where people couldn't see us you know, but now we're in a place where like we can be cosmopolitan and we can travel and we want to raise you to see yourselves that way, that you have access to anything that you need to have access to and that you have an adventurous spirit, that you're not scared to travel and scared to go to new places. Um, And I think at this point, it would be good to name that our father was a Trekkie and that just this (laughs) idea, (laughs) like, you know, that was what was hot in that moment. Like he really was just like, look, let's look at this. You know, there's a whole universe available to us. And, you know, I I think for him as a black man, being in this place of traveling and and raising his kids to do that felt very important to him. Mm -hmm. So 
that's a little bit about our structure. Autumn, what do you want to add? Yeah, just to say too that um, in terms of the three of us as sisters, so um, there's three and a half years between Adrienne and Mm. April, and then just about 20 months between April and me. Yeah. Um, We've always, I mean, our relationships, all three of our relationships have evolved like significantly over the years. Um, I think we've always been one another's like core allies, core people. There's a, there's an element of that that I think 100% has to do with being mixed. Right. You know, like, um, certainly growing up on military bases, one of the, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before. One of the things that's interesting about the U S military is that it's like one of the most racially diverse spaces in the U S right. Or, uh, one of the most racially diverse aspects of us society, right. Is like the U S military. And yet it's highly segregated. Um, and there were, we encountered more mixed race kids, um, I think in our living on military bases than we did not living on military bases, but we were still, we were still always, you know, among the only mixed race kids that we knew. Mm. And so there was an element of like, we are who we have, we're who we've got you know, that I think really influenced the way that the three of us related to each other. Um, And then April and I being really, really close in age meant that we were always just like a year apart in school. Um, And particularly once we got into like our high school years, we, we, we did a lot of the same things. Like we were, April and I were both like theater kids and choir kids and we had a lot of the same friends. Um, We also fought a lot like April and I, April and I had a really different trajectory in our sistership than Adrian and I have had because Adrian and I are five and a half years apart. So it's always been more of an explicit, like you're my older sister who I kind of like, you know, what's the word I'm looking to looking for idolize to some extent, At you least know, when and we who were like kids. lets me tag along <laughs> with like, yeah. you know, your friends sometimes and you go out to do with this, that, you know, and I think with April and I, it was more challenging because we were so close in age and, you know, the power dynamic was different. Like she was my older sister, but didn't like, wasn't older enough for mm. that to really be the dynamic. Um, yeah. I think I think April and I's relationship has like changed so much and and actually we have such a closer, healthier, more loving relationship now that we're adult sisters than we did when we were like teenage sisters. Yeah. Um but Adrian and I have always had more ease in a way in our relationship I think because of the larger difference in age, would you say? I think so. I also think, you know, structurally like well, I think some of it's astrological. Um, so, I, you know, when we're talking about like family structure, we have three Sages, a Pisces, and a Virgo in this household. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm the Virgo, like I'm in the middle, right? The oldest child. And then both of our parents are Sag, April's Pisces, and Autumn's Sag. So, 
in, <laughs> in the household, you know, if you can just imagine. Guess most, who everyone thinks is the favorite. Right? Everyone, everyone, I thought everyone thought them they were the favorite. Um, I think that that's one thing actually my mom and dad have done pretty well is like, you know, I think we all feel very special to our parents. Yes, that's true. Um, that's true. But I also think Sag and Virgos, we're very talkative. We talk over and through and around each other. Um, as people who listen to this podcast know, April as a Pisces was always much more like sensitive. Like I'd love for one speaker at a time. I'd love to not be interrupted. I'd love these things. And as we've gotten older, we've been able to understand those as legitimate needs <laughs> um, and even understand introversion as a legitimate way of being, which, you know, she's definitely like, she would never be in the spotlight podcast situation, you know, like that's not her bag. But I think that that piece also, I, I think a few other things about the family um, is our extended family. So my mom's family was our, they, there's a farm in South Carolina with horses. And my grandfather was a horse breeder, horse farmer. He was the kind of man who would walk around and like horses and dogs would all run after him. Like he seemed to have this other capacity to interact with creatures beyond human. He had a deep relationship to the land and he was a very curious man. Like I think that he is the reason our mother was able to look at our father and see someone she could love, <laughs> you know, um, even though she was steeped in uh, white Southern culture that, that overall was like close to that. And he was an evangelical Christian. Many of our white family are, are evangelical Christian. Well, Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist. And then our dad's side of the family, um, he's the oldest child and a lot of, so it's been like, we have all these aunts and uncles, um, many of whom are even close in age to us. And so when growing up there, we would go back and it'd be like, you know, let's play <laughs> with these kids. These are our, these, they feel like cousins. They feel like family, you know, in, in a younger way. Um, and there was, I felt always a lot more of an openness to us, you know, just like, we're really curious to know who y'all are. Um, although with my mom's family too, when we were all kids, it was super fun. Like we would go and we would be on horses. We would ride around on that four by four, whatever mule thing. John Deere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like get muddy and, you had dogs running around on us and stuff. So there was this way that we, you know, we would get to taste into um, this extended structure that was like, we're here. We love y'all. We don't really understand um, this interracial thing you're up to. We really don't understand <laughs> why you need to travel and keep leaving us all the time. But we we love y'all. So I just wanted to name that extended structure because I'm like, it's, it's not that it wasn't there and it, it's not that we'd ever interacted with it, but on the day-to-day, -day, it was this this unit of five of us moving around, mm. traveling around. Mm. Oh, and our and dog, Sugarfoot, who I have to dog, name. Our dog, Sugarfoot, our perfect, so, perfect Our dog. perfect dog. There's never been another like her. We had her for 13 years. We got her when I was 13, um, and we got her in Georgia. She was um, one of the young ones in, in her little group, and Sugarfoot did not bark for the, like the 11 years of her 13 years of life. She learned how to bark like right towards the end um, <laughs> right. after a weird stay at some like dog shelter place. But then she was like, hold on. She came back. She was like, hold on. Arr, arr, arr. I've got things to say. But for most of our lives, she was just like, I don't know about this. She was more stuff. of a whinnier. Like, yeah. She's like, mm. and she, we all got along with her. We all confided in her. She was a major part of our unit as well. 
Mm, it's beautiful. Yeah, I I always I'm glad we got to learn a little bit more about April because yeah. um I just always think of her as like international woman of mystery. She is that. You know, April works for the State Department and so it's like <laughs> in some ways our work couldn't be more different. Um mm-hmm. and yet I think there's been this powerful process for us of staying in relationship with each other in those different locations of work. Mm. Well, talk about, okay, so you grew up in this military family. Um, How were you politicized? You know, you grew up, your dad was working for the Pentagon and here you guys are as, you know, in some ways leading figures and thinkers on the left. How did, uh, what what were you, what were you learning about politics and power in your home? Hmm. Well, I can I can say a few. I feel things. like you should start, and then I can like pick up the thread. <laughs> um, maybe like on I can pick up the thread on nine eleven. Oh, like you could take us to there. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean nine eleven was actually a really major polarizing moment for our family. Yeah. Um, so leading into that, you know, growing up, I think we had a lot of pride and patriotism. Um, initially, like as a young person, I was very proud of my dad. You know, I felt a lot of, you know, I'd seeing him in his uniform and marching around and everything. I had a very benevolent sense of what he was up to. You know, it's just like he is strong and brave and protecting us. And um, I remember, I think around the sixth grade, I started questioning that. Uh, I wrote an essay that people shouldn't have to wear uniforms because it, it flattens and makes everyone have to conform. Um, and it was like kind of the first inkling that I was like questioning things around me. Um, and then I had an amazing journalism teacher um, in Germany who really encouraged me to question everything. Like, I, I still don't understand how this person ended up working at a Department of Defense schools in Germany, but um, I'm trying to Military is full of all kinds of unique people. It's true. It's true. And and then the folks who kind of judge around all that, but <laughs> she, she was a really politicizing teacher um, because she kept pushing me to think critically. Um, she was one of the people who encouraged me to apply to Columbia, actually. And she was like, you know, you need to write and you have a lot of questions. And so I landed at Columbia just like wide open, you know, very ready for something different and new. And I got involved in the Black Student Organizing Group almost immediately upon landing. Um, and and then kept getting politicized by all these other things that were happening concurrently. You know, I think we landed there at a really interesting time. There was like struggles around ethnic studies happening. You know, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, like it was just like my mind kept feeling blown as I, I mean, I, I learned about capitalism in a, in a totally new way. And I remember sitting in one of the core curriculum classes, having this meltdown where I realized everyone else in the class was a capitalist and like pro-competition as a way of structuring society. And I was like the lone figure trying to make the case for collectivism. And for I was like, there's a different way. And even the teacher was just like, no, <laughs> you know, like try in other ways. They don't work. It doesn't work. Like this is the only one way. ring to rule them all. Um, so that kind of stuff, I just, I was like, rat, you know, I just got, got more and more radical and I want to name the social aspect of it because I think college is one of those places where the relationships you form really shape what ends up Mm -hmm. happening with the rest of your life. Um, I think Mm -hmm. that's true of that period of your life. So 
because I also, the people I befriended, including you, Danny McLean, were thinking critically and were asking these big questions and were saying, we need to be brave enough to do something about it. Like that fire Mm. was lit up in me. And then Amadou Diallo was killed while we were at, at Columbia. And that pulled me into this whole beginning of my journey around abolition Um, And then Chaika Omowale was one of our classmates, and she asked me to join her in this effort that she named Conscious Movements, which was raising awareness around HIV, AIDS, and like the prevalence of it in the New York area and how the numbers were the same as Sub-Saharan Africa. But because of racism, people were like, oh, those Africans have this and that could never happen in the U.S. It's like it's happening here. It's happening to black and brown people here, and we're trying to ignore it and but we were doing it through entertainment <laughs> and we were doing these massive concerts like John Legend came to our concerts and Imani Azuri and all these people. And so stuff before they were big, before they, before they were big, like, right. before, John yeah. Legend before he was John Legend, before he was John Legend. <laughs> like I just still remember him and like little tiny Kanye running in with a little book bag in that show. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> it, you know, um, but, but all of this was, ha- you know, I was just like, I need to give my life to movement. Like that's what, that's what I'm going to do. And it, that felt very clear to me at that point. And I got my first job in the political realm at the Harm Reduction Coalition. And um, the Harm Reduction Coalition was like helping people reduce the harm that comes from drugs and alcohol in their lives. And it was a big deal, you know, because it was me stepping into a space of like, I'm a drug user. I'm someone who cares about this and these people and these issues. And coming home, the tension was building during this period because, um, you know, there were drug users and people who had experienced prison and, and, you know, teenage mothers and all of that in our extended family. And I, I was like, I see all of that. This is our story. I'm not doing something on behalf of other people. I'm trying to be honest about what our family has and what we all need. And it felt very much like that's not, you know, <laughs> how my da- how my dad particularly wanted to see our situation. And I want to name a lot of how I learned to think critically was sitting at our dining room table, having these big conversations, often with my dad for hours where we'd be pushing at each other, you know, like, here's a question. He really loves to have a big political conversation, actually, and get into it. Um, and he holds a middle ground. Like, he's very much like, I want to be able to see all the sides of this. And I'm very much like, but there's a right side <laughs> and there's a wrong side. And during that period, that was super heightened. And then the war, you know, so September 11th happened and I was in New York. My dad was at the Pentagon. Um, where were you, Autumn? It was my first day of college. First day of college at Sarah Lawrence, right? Um, so, and dad wasn't actually at the Pentagon, right? But he worked there. So all day, I thought that he was at the Pentagon. And I had tried to reach him. I had found someone. They said hi. That they couldn't. They didn't know where he was. And then the next news we got was that the Pentagon had been bombed. And his office was actually destroyed in that bombing. But he had been called away to some meeting, I think, in Atlanta or something that day. So that, for me, I'll just... And I'm, this is a lot, but I'll just say that moment really rended us apart from each other because for me, I was like, the U.S. has done a lot that led to this moment and we need to be accountable and we need to not 
not move towards war in this moment. That feels very clear to me. And for him, he was at the Pentagon and he was in, in grief and in loss and surrounded by other people in that same mindset. And they were gearing up to go to war. And we, mm. we had a fight. Uh, I remember us, we had a big fight in New mm. York. It was raining and we basically both called each other terrorists. And then I got out of the car and I, I, I think we didn't speak again for a year. Yeah. I remember, I remember being in the back of the van when that happened. Um, do you want me to pick up the thread? Yeah. Here? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I would say, I would guess I would maybe like slightly, uh, if you don't mind an adjustment or correction, I would say it was like not exactly that that day was an intense day for our family, but more like the 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 months that followed, yeah, right? As totally. as it became more and more clear, not just what was going to happen, but the role that our father was going to play in what was happening, or the role that he was playing by default of the position that he was in, because at the time of um at the time of the uh, um, attacks on 9-11, he was the chief of the war plans division at the Pentagon, which was, you know, in charge of designing, you know, plans and games around specific scenarios. Yeah. Um, so whereas he wasn't necessarily directly involved in the, the war effort that followed, he had a hand in designing um, the U.S. military response because of the role that he had been in, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it was a very complicated time, right? Because it's like, this is his job. His office is destroyed. He has multiple people who he's lost in the attack. Um, and we are coming of age in a... I mean, I think that there's another, there's that other context setting that I think is also really important and helpful to do around like what it means, what it, what it has meant for our generation to be coming of age at the, the millennium, the turning of the millennium, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Y2K, <laughs> right? And, and not only 9-11, but then soon after the invasion of Iraq. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So the place where I'll pick up the story, I guess I'll give a little bit of the pre and post, you know, so I'm graduating from high school, entering college at the same time period, right? I've had a slightly different trajectory from Adrian and as much as like, you know, I've gone to high school in the U.S., in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is, you know, a slightly more um, progressive space than some of the other spaces that we had lived in up to that point. I had gotten involved in like some student activism as a high school student. Like we created like an Amnesty International chapter at our school, like that kind of thing, you know? And, and I'm doing a bunch of theater and music and poetry and like, you know, really living into my like, I'm an artist. <laughs> um, <laughs> life, right? Yeah. And I will say too, for I guess this is even more context setting, but and Adrian can confirm this as a personality. I was always like within our family, I was like the free spirited one oh, yeah. who was just like burping, weird, 
<laughs> you know, and nice. and very resistant to authority, like from a very young age. Like I had a lot of incidents over the course of my childhood where I was, you know, getting in trouble at school because of being of refusing to comply with authorities. You know, so of course I picked Sarah Lawrence College because Sarah Lawrence College is like it's like the college in the U.S. that you go to when you don't want to have to have a major um, because we don't have majors here. Everything is different about how this school works. So my first day of school um, was 9-11-2001. And I was like, had been on campus for a week. I was in a class called Empires to Nations, the birth of the modern Middle East when the right. towers were struck. Um. And similar to Adrian, right? I, 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 after the towers were struck, I heard that the Pentagon had been struck. Um, or af- I guess maybe I heard that the Pentagon had been struck first. Regardless of the order, I spent several hours thinking that my father was dead. Yeah. And that was what I was focused on. Um, even though I was in New York and the towers being struck is like what most everyone else around me was focused on. It was a really terrifying day, right? Um, and... You know, and we did. We learned that day that our father was alive. Um, and and the, so there's this moment of profound solidarity within our family uh, and f- also a moment of profound fear and terror. And then what ensues is um, bombings in Afghanistan and this declaration of war in Iraq within a year. Um, and of course, Adrian and I were both, you know, that, I mean, as Adrian was already saying, was such a moment of profound politicization. And both of us were already like starting to do organizing work in some capacity. Me as a student organizer, Adrian as like an actual like paid organizer in New York City. And then of course we both got swept into the anti-war effort, you know, um, we were both at that, the huge march on Washington against the war. Do you remember? It was like one of the biggest marches ever that happened before people stopped doing those kinds of marches. <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel well, like people have started was, doing them again. Yeah, I was like, they're making a comeback, but they're I They're totally making a comeback. That's right. They're making a comeback. But there was like a, there was a moment, you know, and um, I remember us being there together. I remember like uniting, like finding each other there the at that march. Um, but for sure it was, it was a really painful period for our family. Um, uh, and I would say a painful period that lasted for a number of years, right? Because there was a time, there was like the ongoing time that our father was still working at the Pentagon. Ultimately he did end up getting, um, a new assignment that took our parents really far away from the centers of, um, the centers of political power, um, which I think was so good for, it was so good for them and it was so good for all of our relationships when that happened, right? They ended up relocating to the South Pacific and then later to Japan. And so they were suddenly really far away from the war, the, <laughs> the war effort itself. And I think that that was sort of a moment where there was a real, I guess the the thing I want to the point that I'm wanting to make here is that like at the point where we were able to start to heal our relationships within our family, like starting that healing process, 
um, which I would say is like around the time that they relocated to the South Pacific, was also the time that I would say for both Adrian and I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, Adrian, but I think for both Adrian and I, we were like shifting from being like activists to actually becoming people who are rooted in a politic. Yeah. And I think that like to that question you asked Danny of like, how did you get politicized? I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like there's like the swirl that is around any one of us at whatever time in history that it's possible for us to get politicized, right? Like there's some politicization that is always possible for anyone at any point in history just based on the swirl of like what is happening at that moment in history that you are living through. But then there's that moment where you turn and you decide that you are going to step into the river or let the river pull you in a particular direction. And that I, I think of that as like the point where you actually choose to root yourself in a, in a politic, you know, whether it's a specific ideology or a specific like lineage of organizing or whatever it is. And, and I think that Adrian and I entered those, we entered kind of slightly differently. Like mine was much more like explicitly like, becoming an anarchist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love, Adrian, for you to describe how you would, like, how you entered, like, what, what, where you decided to throw your roots down in terms of yeah. your political, your, your politic or your political ideology. But I would say that, like, that moment overlapped with some healing that was happening in our family. And I think that, like, because, because conversation and political debate and strategy and diplomacy was like um it was it was a part of our family culture it was something that was really prized right mm-hmm. and so being able to engage like for me being able to engage my father on a political issue and know that i could stand toe to toe with him and like talk about something and know that i knew what i was talking about was important to me and of course, there were times and there still are times where I feel a lot of resistance in me to the idea of like needing to debate anybody about anything. <laughs> but I think being raised in a culture like that, like influenced me towards the idea of like, oh, it's not enough to just like feel a feeling. I need to know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to like express my politics in a grounded way where I'm not going to get so flustered that I like leave the room because I'm being challenged. And so even though those are such hard years of our family history, I also like, I really credit our family culture to like why I do what I do now and why I show up in movements the way I show up now. Because I think I carry that same sensibility in me where I'm like, you can have whatever ideas you have, but I I can't take your organizing seriously if you aren't rigorous about your ideas, if you aren't rigorous about your politics. And if the first challenge that you experience to your ideas or your person is met with your total dysregulation and like freaking out on people, you know, and or leaving or leaving or leaving or making others leave. Right. Like I take very seriously that like I I should be able to handle it when my ideas are challenged. Yeah, that's that's a part of my politic, you know, I really appreciate 
the sharing autumn. And I think the things I want to weave into it is, you know, years, years, years later, Prentice Hemphill gives us the gift of this quote, boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and myself simultaneously. And what I know, you know, when I think about that night getting out of the car and just being like, that's it, you know, like I'm not, I'm not standing with this worldview anymore of my father. It was that boundary setting of like, I have a different call and a different belief and I have to go stand in it. And in in a way it's, you know, what we did during that period, I think was the same as what our parents did during theirs. You know, they were like the way that y'all see, you know, race, uh, the, the way that you're buying into this construct of racism and everything, we, we don't agree with it. And so we're going to make our own way and maybe yes. you'll catch up and you'll keep loving us and maybe you won't, but we got to go and we got to follow love and go. And I feel like then 20 years later, you know, the same thing is happening where it's like, maybe you're going to stick with this military path. And even though it is racial capitalism and it is killing people and it is violent and it is unnecessary, but we can't ride with you anymore on it. And the biggest direct action I've done in my life was I became a war tax resistor during that period. And it felt like um, such a meaningful action for me because of our father's political position, right? Because I was like, when the IRS catches me, which they're definitely going to do, I will be imprisoned as the daughter of the chief of war plans. And (laughs) that is, you know, strategically, I was like, that's what I can do with this proximity, right? And it mattered, you know, it mattered to me. I think it drove me further into my radical scholarship. You know, I was like, well, I really want to understand what the alternatives to this are. And I think that drove me to the ruckus society that, you know, that drove me past electoral, po- you know, I was like, okay, electoral politics still keeps us within this structure. I need to go further than that. It took me to ruckus. It took me you know, I, I feel like I just kept going. I was like, what? And I still feel like I'm on that trajectory of like, how do we, how do we transform it all? And, um, but Finally I only found it, your way back to the body and well, now you're keeping going. <laughs> and I, I keep going, but I, it also is like this, you know, what you were saying is like, I don't want to be able to speak just from my feelings. And part of what was, I was laughing as I was like, and I did, right. I was like, I do right. want to be able to speak from my feelings. I do mm. want to be able to stand in the face of someone who's making a logical argument that is inhumane and say, mm-hmm. I can make a felt somatic argument that is humane mm-hmm. and that puts us in relationship with the planet. So when I think about the long arc, like how our family feels now is like a bunch of people in their dignity with deep respect for each other, with a lot of honesty about what we've been and who we've been yeah. and a lot of honesty about like how we're showing up now. But I, I, I'm so glad we're talking about this because I'm like, I never thought that I would feel grateful for that time in our family's history. And I feel so grateful for it because I feel like everyone had to become themselves inside of it. And everyone had to recognize that we each had political work still to do. Yeah. I'm so glad, Adrian, that you jumped in and said like, oh, that's interesting that it felt important for you, Autumn, to like ground your analysis or your ability to show up with our family in this kind of like intellectual heft. Um, Because as she was saying that, I was like, that's so interesting because one of the things I've always noticed and really loved about Adrian's Adrian's kind of way of communicating about the world and her her power analysis is that it's very much, of course, it's very like intellectual, but it's also emotional. Like you have stood in the validity of emotional response as part of argument 
is like a, a powerful part of argument. Well, and I'm so it. it makes me wonder, <laughs> yeah, what, you know, how do you, what feels aligned about your work? Like, how do you guys show up to this work in an aligned way? Um, Good segue. In similar ways. Uh, you know, that was a fucking skillful segue. I've got some practice, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, my job. This is my job. Take notes. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, you know, what's similar and, and what feels distinct or, yeah. or different? Yeah. You start, Autumn. I mean, I think one of the things that's cool about it is that even though we have this shared project, our work is really different. I feel like there's a lot of distinctions between. So many. Um, and it's funny because I think I think there's I think maybe people externally witnessing us, especially if they don't know a lot about how we do what we do, might assume that there's more overlap than there is, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think so too. Because we are we're both facilitators. Um, we both have a background as organizers. We're both writers. We both specifically write science fiction. <laughs> We're both musicians. We both sing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's there's all of these things that both of us do. And um, and Adrian and I, we think I think we've mentioned this on the show before, but like we also have had this pattern historically where we will be like starting to think about something or explore something um, around the same time and then realize it. Like I'll be like, I think, like, I remember, <laughs> I, I have a distinct memory of, of of a time that this happened when you were visiting me, Adrian, in my old house. <laughs> and I was like, um, I was like, I think I might be a witch because at this time I hadn't figured it out yet. And you were yeah. like, I think I might be a witch. And I was like, <laughs> of course, of course, you also I think you might, be of course. Everything that I am. What else? Um, <laughs> so um, it's been, it's been funny. I mean, of course, like, you know, like anyone might imagine it, 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 the, the places where there is overlap and similarity between us can also produce tension. Right. Um, but in terms of the distinctions, um, I would say like the, 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 there's the distinction of the actual like labor that we do, like the work labor you know, what we do for a job job. Yeah. Um, I would say like, I probably do a lot more explicit, like political education. Um, I, in, in terms of my paid work, like I do a lot, I, I am in the background, um, oftentimes in secret (laughs) working (laughs) with like social justice and movement organizations like designing the way that they can achieve liberatory practices internally so that their internal process and internal relationships and the way that they partner with each other um, are more aligned with their externally stated values. Um, And so like I'm doing a lot of work with people around like resiliency, around like the revolutionary practice of black feminism. But what is that not that's not just an idea, but actually a practice. Uh, I do a lot of work with folks around like theory of change and political rigor and like, Mm. you know, so there is an extent to which. I think you you picked up on this, Danny, like my work is very intellectual or I mean, 
I don't know. I feel like sometimes that word gets like a bad rap, but like there's a, um, there's definitely like a, <laughs> like a design functionality element to the work that I actually do for my job job. Yeah. And I think the fact that like, for the most part, whatever it is that I'm doing or whoever it is that I'm working with is like not a known, it's not known. Like I don't, um, yeah. I don't do my paid work in a real public facing way, I think is also pretty different um, from where Adrian, where you are in your career at this time. Um, um, I think hmm. other distinctions. I mean, I think the, I, I think that in terms of like our political lens, I don't even know. I don't know. This isn't like a distinction that is necessarily has like a felt quality to it. But I think like the fact that I was like an anarchist organizer and like explicitly a part of like anarchist movement works for a whole stretch of time. And you were really in the realm at that same time, you were really like working in the realm of like electoral and then climate justice work, you know, um, there, there was so, there's like a lot of threading and weaving across those spaces that we have done together. Yeah. Um, but I think it also meant that like the focus of the work that we were doing was often different too, you know, where I'm over here, like really, really focused on like decision-making and like, how do people learn how to make decisions democratically? You know, and you're over here like with Ruckus really, really focused on like, how do we get the organization to actually be indigenous and people of color led? Like, what is the pathway between here and there? You know, and obviously there's like a whole bunch of stuff that's weaving across those two spaces. And so we would always be like finding each other, exchanging ideas and then going back into whatever the spaces of movement were that we were operating. Yeah. Um, but I think that there is like a yeah different focus, I guess. Well, I mean, some of it is something that has always felt interesting to me is I'm like, I don't know how different things would be if we weren't five and a half years apart because there's certain pieces of it that have been like, oh, like, you know, like what I'm doing right now is writing full time, you know, fiction and nonfiction full time. And I'm like, I can imagine that being something you're doing in a few years as well. I mean, God willing. God willing. And also like (laughs) just when people start reading your novel, (laughs) they're going to be like, oh, you have to do this now professionally all the time. So, you know, but I, I think some of it has been a function of time. I think another major distinction is that you became a parent early in life and I'm not a parent. And so there's been certain places where, um, you know, I'm like, I've been able to like, you know, the public facing work or other stuff like that. I mean, like I can fly all over the place. I can do whatever. Like I don't have anything else I have to attend to other than, (laughs) you know, what I'm thinking and what I'm interested in pursuing that. And, um, I feel like watching you become a parent, you know, I think the alignment of our work is that the facilitative thread runs through it, that there is a, a piece in, in both of us that deeply believes that there is a way that humans can be in relationship with each other across difference, across different opinions, across painful histories. There is still a way that humans can find their way back into a conversation that matters and yes. that either sets a clear boundary or a clear path forward together. And I think that that thread has brought us back 
back in and out of relationship, I feel like you were willing to go much more radical much earlier than I was. And, you know, I think as the oldest child, there was still so much of like me that was like, I still have to do something that feels respectable to my parents. I still have to do something that feels (laughs) like they'll understand it. You know, I still have to do something that um, feels like it's it's in touch with these existing systems. And so I think that I was slower to acknowledge that these systems are inevitably um, going to fall and how do we begin to prepare ourselves for what comes next. And I think that you've always been a radicalizing force for me in that way, that you were like, it's, we're, it's not going to work. <laughs> like, fuck that. Um, and <laughs> I think that in terms of the distinctions now, I would also say, I really think that you are someone, it's it's actually interesting to me. You're someone who actually feels very deeply and has been doing a bunch of your own somatic work, but still very much lands in that intellectual analytical way of approaching like what's happening and what needs to happen. Right. And I feel I'm like I'm a true Sagittarius in that way. Deeply, deeply Sagittarius. Yeah. And I feel like I'm a rebel Virgo because I actually, that kind of analysis, even though I can do it and I can do it very well, like I might be one of the best, I can figure it out. But it has, it's not where my river flows, right? When you say that getting into the river and letting yourself be moved, for whatever reason, the journey of my life is very much about the sense, the felt, the like emotional pattern and the emotional journey. And so there's, I want to name like some, one key moment for me when I was in the process of writing, we will not cancel us or what became, we will not cancel us so much of what I was writing was, here's what I feel. (laughs) I feel this pattern. Mm. You know, I can bring some analysis to it, but I think when people read it, they can say, it's like the feeling is leading. And then I'm looking for analysis to help make sense of stuff. But I'm like trying to feel my way from like where we are in our movement culture to where I think we could be. And you were so helpful of coming and sitting down with me and being like, okay, but from an analytical lens, here is how what you're saying connects to other analytical pathways that are playing out right now and that you're you're not paying attention to because you're feeling your feelings instead of watching the news and like tracking all this, you know, movement gossip and movement data and all this other. I'm like, I don't, I was like, oh, <laughs> the radical right says that. I literally pay them zero mind. Right. Like, telling me, <laughs> right. So there's moments like that, that I, I you know, I want to highlight because I'm like, those kind of distinctions actually really help me. Now you're one of those people Um, and this has always been true. Like when we were kids, I would write a song or a poem and I would be like, Autumn, I've got to sing the song to you or, you know, read this poem. And she would be like, here's my poem. And like her (laughs) approval, her approval of what I was creating has always been really important to me. And so even now when I'm like, I feel something, I've written something from that feeling, (laughs) her approval of that Mm -hmm. from an analytical standpoint is one of the opinions I, I count on, even if I disagree. And there are times when we have disagreed with each other that feel important to me too. Um, And I love that. You know, I love the work that you're doing now. And I think the final distinction I want to name is Autumn is truly, truly extroverted. (laughs) Deeply, truly extroverted. She spends her life in relationship with other people. You know, I, the number of times I've come to visit her and she's like, oh, and these other five people are also going to be around, you know, the whole time or this will happen or whatever. And I'm, you don't know what I'm talking about, but, and yet, you know, (laughs) she, she works in a cooperative where she's constantly in meetings and processes with other people. And she likes that shit. And she's, you know, she just like, she's a true extrovert. And I 
<laughs> while not actually being super public facing, right? But just truly in relationship, right? Whereas I am a true introvert and I am a famous introvert. So there's a public facing component to it, you know, but in terms of how I spend my days, I'm like the less people, the better. How many few people can I have around me and how quiet can we get? Mm-hmm. You know, how much time, you know, like every day I'm like, how many hours do I get to be alone <laughs> during right. this There's day? like that moment every day where you're like, but can you be more quiet? Is there a exactly. more quiet that you can be? <laughs> Nalo always teases me for all the nice ways I'm asking her to be quiet, you know, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> but actually she's secretly quiet too. So it works. Like we're very quiet in our home. And so <laughs> I think that is a distinction that also shows up in, in, what has shaped our lives and our work is I'm always trying to figure out how can I be in community as an introverted person who really wants to be by myself, but also knows that community is the answer for how we survive. How? And I feel like you're always figuring out like, how do I also attend to my own genius and my own gifts inside of a very vibrant, buoyant, boisterous community? Connected life. So my sister, we did this amazing episode of being interviewed by our friend Danny and um, and we sent it to our family because our family are all significantly more private people than we are and maybe have better memories, at least in have some, different memories. In some cases, maybe yeah. remember things more accurately. Yeah, that's a generous... In some cases, because some in some cases, the things that we remember... We remembered as children <laughs> yeah. and our parents were adults at the time. And so they had more <laughs> clarity around what was happening. They're like, here's what was actually happening as someone who was five foot two during that time when mm-hmm. you were three inches tall. So, um, <clears throat> so we wanted to add this addendum that just has some corrections <laughs> that came in from our family, mm-hmm. um, primarily from our mother. Um, mm-hmm. The rest of our family was kind of like, yep, that sounds about right for y'all but we wanted to share these so do you want to here I'll just go I can share the first one because it yeah, feels like it's first, about my and then life we can just trade it back and forth okay great so the first thing mom wanted to make sure that you all knew um mom and dad was that he wasn't gone all the time during those three years that we were in Germany when I was an infant um he was gone for chunks of like three to four weeks at a time and also, she wasn't stranded there without a car, <laughs> unbeknownst to me. she They did have a car from pretty early on, and she wants you to know that she would take adventurous drives off the military base and purposefully go get lost to find adventures. And she not only did this in Germany, but later when we lived in Japan, she did this, and people would ask her all the time, aren't you worried that you'll get lost? And her response was, we're on an island. Fuji's that way. The sun is that way. I'll figure it out. (laughs) And I remember this. I went on one of these rides with her where I was like, so we literally can't read any of the signs. And she's like, no, but I do know we're supposed to go this way. (laughs) I was like, okay, yeah, cool. And and it worked. And it was a wonderful way to explore. So that's the first thing that mom wanted you to know. She had a car. And dad was around a lot more than I realized. And yeah, that's great. She had that makes uh, sense, too, because we have tons of photos of dad with me when I was young. (laughs) Like, right. I'm like, oh, yeah. It's not he like was, he wasn't there. He was there. Um, <laughs> yes. And mom, 
I mean, I think the thing that we all definitely knew to be true growing up, right, is that she had a really, really adventurous spirit and yes. still has yes. an adventurous spirit and is just yes. like down for whatever. Literally, her suitcase um, is always packed. Literally. <laughs> she has like a set of toiletries that just stay in her suitcase so that yes, she doesn't have like, to like. She's like, where are we going? Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing that she wanted to offer as a correction is that I, Autumn, was about 18 months old um, when we went back to West Germany the second time. Um, and I really appreciated her offering also the specifics of like at the time that we, the of those first two tours to Germany, Germany was still divided between East and West and we were in West Germany at the time. Um, and so I think I had said during the episode that I was about 11 months old, but I was actually about a year and a half old. Yeah, stop rushing your life, you know? Mm-hmm. So then something else that we caught actually when we were listening back through it, we were both like, wait a second, <laughs> that math doesn't math. Um, <laughs> so we said in the episode, I think that our parents fell in love in 1974, but actually they met each other in November of 1976. They started seeing each other in January of 1977, got married in April of 1977. And mm-hmm. at that point, interracial marriage had been legal for uh, only about 10 years. Yeah. Oh, they I got worked. married on April, on April Fool's Day so that no one would ever forget the anniversary date. Yeah. And it's worked. Just want to mm-hmm. say that. Good idea. <laughs> um, and then mom also offered some corrections on, um, on the specific events that took place on September 11th, 2001. So... She reminded us that on that morning, he was on a plane to Atlanta. Yeah. And he called back once he landed in Atlanta um, because he knew that something was happening in New York City. But then mom and dad couldn't reach each other for the rest of the day. And she was having a really hard time reaching any of us. Yeah. Um, She she described how she sat... um, at home in our family room with Sugarfoot at her feet, watching the Twin Towers fall, watching the Pentagon Pentagon get hit, um, and, you know, receiving 25 to 30 calls to her house from friends, many of whom they hadn't heard from in years to see if they were okay. Um, and I do remember that, you know, some several hours into that morning, my mom was finally able to reach me, Um, I had had I had been um, in the auditorium of my college watching Mm -hmm. the news happen, you know, watching the towers fall along with hundreds of other students. But my roommate, one of my roommates was sitting in our room by the phone. And so when the call came in from my mom about my dad, um, she dispatched another one of the people who lived on our floor to run to the auditorium to get me so that I could, because everyone knew I was waiting to find out about my dad. And I went like running as fast as I could back to my dorm. Mm -hmm. And then as I was about to reach the building, she came running outside to say, your dad's alive. Your dad's alive. Your mom's on the phone and your dad's alive. And I remember just like collapsing to my knees outside of my dormitory. (laughs) Right. And then getting inside and having just enough time to like, you know, say hi to my mom and and talk to her a little bit about what was going on before the call cut out. <clears throat> wow, the intensity of these memories, you know, like basically that day and 
the day of our dad's heart attack are the two days, you know, where it's just like that feeling of like, mm-hmm. this day is changing everything, could change everything. And from the, yeah. all the people I know who have lost their parents, like, there's just nothing that compares to that feeling of unmooring, you know, it's yeah. just like the ground comes out from under you. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm grateful that mom was, yeah. she, was, she I'm, I'm grateful. Actually, I was like so happy to know that she knew because I was like, oh, I didn't know because no one, I was right in the middle of Manhattan and no one could reach me. Right. But you had to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, right? Yes. I walked across, right? the, walked from, yeah, 23rd Street across the Brooklyn Bridge into Park right. Slope to my friend's houses where, friend's house where we ate kielbasa. Um, I was a vegetarian at that point for four years. I was like, fuck this. I'm not dying without meat in my system. Um, so, um, and then related, relatedly, which it w- was really good actually to remember, mom was like, we, me and my dad did not actually go a whole year without talking. Um, we, it was quick. We were like, it wasn't the way we usually talked. We would have quick hellos and other stuff. Um, but when they moved from D.C. to the Marshall Islands, which was the next assignment, which is its whole own, like someday we should just do an episode just on all the beauty and complication of that <laughs> experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they moved down there, I came to visit in Hawaii and then came to visit them down there. And it was a really healing time, actually, for my dad and I. And I remember yeah. many mornings um, we would wake up both of us really early and we would go sit on the back like there was this back deck patio area that looked out at the ocean and we would watch the sunrise together and sometimes we would talk a lot of times we wouldn't even talk it was just like we were very happy to be okay with each other (laughs) you know happy to be sitting next to each other not yelling and not arguing and I still feel that feeling you know so often with our family I think I hope that as people have listened to this you hear the dynamic tensions of America are really all throughout our family. And there's so many times when all of that is able to be present and we're able to sit with each other and laugh and love each other um, Mm -hmm. without anyone having to compromise fundamentally who they are. And there's something about that, that, that it gives me hope and it teaches me. You know, it teaches me all the time when I think I know what we need to do for all of humanity. I'm like, well, I know one path and yeah, there's a many yeah. paths and we're, we mm-hmm. are navigating like 50 of them. So, yeah. Yeah. So those are the corrections for yeah. this episode. Um, and uh, yeah, we hope you appreciate both getting to hear our version of the story and <laughs> some getting to hear the some of the addenda. <laughs> yeah, and I really want to also say a big thank you to our family and, you know, and also to all of our close friends. I think everyone in our lives at some point has shown up as reference material in this podcast. And yeah, that's I'm real. just really grateful that, you know, folks with are or just, without consent. Yeah. This was like, <laughs> we're like, should we actually like send this to them and like let them hear it before we expose their whole stories? Yeah. But yeah, thank you so much for trusting us with your stories and letting us share them here. We're grateful. And thank you all for listening. It was thrilling for us to be on the receiving end of Danny's beautiful questions. And we're actually just scratching the surface. Um, 
Um, so we decided rather than trying to cut and cut and cut at this conversation we had, we're going to release this episode in two parts. So this concludes part one. Thank you, Danny McLean. And oh, remember to head to Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash into the world show. You can peruse all of our new and incredible merch and we'll see you soon.